If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Journalist Sam Quinones is the author of a new book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and the Hope and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Joins us for Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Sam, how are you, sir? Not bad, Joe. How about you? Uh, terrific, thanks. Really excited to be talking to you today. I apologize that uh, my co-host is not with us. He is—he uh, had surgery yesterday and is ironically under the influence of powerful painkillers. How do you like that? And, and did Well, I hope he's doing well. Well, thank you. Uh, so I've admired your work for a very long time, um, and so this is it's great to talk. Um, Sam might be best known, if not for writing for the L.A. Times for a decade, uh, from about 2004 to 2014 for... Then for his uh, his best-selling book in 2015, Dreamland, which was about uh, the opioid epidemic and the hows and, and where's and when's of that. When when you were wrapping that book up in 2015, uh, I'll bet you couldn't dream of the, the reality we're dealing with now. That, that's, in fact, the case. I had I was I've been a I've been a crime reporter for a lot of years. And um, really, I just could not imagine what you would write about after heroin. Right. It just seemed to me like that was about as bad as it could get. And then the book comes out. It, it generates, I think, a lot of awareness and a lot of interest across the country. I began to do a lot of speaking over the next several years. And along the way, uh, I figured out <laughs> what, what comes after heroin. And that, of course, is uh, is is fentanyl. And so that that led in, in large part to the to the book uh, I just put out. Well, we uh, I read with interest the excerpt from your new book in The Atlantic uh, entitled I Don't Know That I Would Even Call It Meth Anymore. And we've spent a lot of time talking about that, partly because the show is based on the West Coast and there is hardly a West Coast city of more than 6,000 people that does not have a serious problem with quote unquote homelessness or homeless camps and that sort of thing. Uh, and I think to a very large extent, those are, are uh, junkie camps. They're meth camps. But before we get to the meth thing, which is 
fascinating. Um, let's talk a little bit about opioids and heroin and fentanyl, which, were it not for the, the COVID thing, I think would be an international conversation. It would be the leading conversation on Earth, probably. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a certainly um, a, a extraordinarily important and perhaps because, because of COVID not really getting the attention uh, it, it deserves. Basically, fentanyl is, uh, fentanyl is, a, is a wonderful um, drug, medically speaking. It's highly likely that your, your, your colleague is, is being given fentanyl as we speak. Uh, it revolutionized surgery. It allowed for anesthesia that, that really wasn't possible uh, before that. And, of course, that's all within the medical uh, context. But once in the hands of the, the underworld, it's, it's, it's a whole other story. Uh, fentanyl is a very powerful, much more powerful than morphine, much more powerful than, 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 um, than, than heroin. And um, it's part of, on, on the street, and, and it's part of the, the Mexican trafficking world's uh, shift, you might say, away from uh, what they traditionally focused on, which were plant-based drugs, marijuana, of course, first, uh, opium poppy, too, um, away from plant-based drugs and towards synthetics. Um, this happened with methamphetamine, but then as the opioid epidemic took, took shape in our country, lots of people began shifting to heroin. They began producing heroin down in Mexico, more of it than they'd ever had before. And along the way, they discover fentanyl. This is a synthetic heroin. You make it with chemicals only. The benefits of synthetic drugs over plant-based drugs to a trafficker are many, right? You don't need land. You really just need a, a warehouse of some kind or some place to, to put your, your lab that's very small. And then you don't need rain, sunshine. You don't need farmers to harvest it. You don't need um, just a lot of things, pesticides, et cetera. All you really need is access to shipping ports. Once you have access to shipping ports, which they do on the Pacific coast of Mexico, there's two major ports right down there, um, you, you, get, you can get access then to all the world, the world's chemical market, which is, is vast and huge. And, and it, it comes from China, but it also can come from like almost any country, really, once you have, once you have a port to receive it uh, in. And so that is what's been going on. It really, their, their, their move away f- to, to, towards synthetic drugs really began with methamphetamine years ago. And that's changed, too, recently, as I wrote, wrote about in the book and in the excerpt you're referring to. Um, but And then along the way, they discover fentanyl. And another story that I talk about in the book, how the Sinaloa drug cartel discovers fentanyl, very interesting tale, um, largely due to one, uh, one underground chemist in particular, um, but what that means is that they can produce now drugs um, all year round. There's no seasons anymore, right? There's no summer and fall when you have synthetic drugs. And if you can get the chemicals that you need, um, you can produce it in just stunning quantities. And that is really what's happening. They, they control, uh, when, at least when it comes to those, those chemicals, they, they control uh, the traffic at, the, at these ports. They're able to produce both fentanyl and methamphetamine in quantities that are absolutely um, uh, staggering, just unprecedented quantities, so much so that they've done something that is really unprecedented in this, uh, in this country, uh, where one source, uh, underground, one underworld source, has been able to effectively cover the entire country with these, with these two drugs. And in methamphetamine's case, 
the price has, has collapsed. So in many areas, the price of methamphetamine is, is 80% lower than it was a few years a few years back. But whatever the case, they now have the, these drugs are now all across uh, the country. There, you know, New England never had any methamphetamine, and now it does. You know, yeah. fentanyl is found everywhere, and so this is the the, the enormous uh, fact that we are now having to contend with uh, as a country. Well, I was going to say, uh, one of the obvious advantages to a smuggler is that the stuff is so incredibly powerful, a small amount will get many, many people high. But it sounds like it's so profitable that that they're taking the risks, uh, such as they are, to ship enormous amounts of this stuff. Hey, remind us, I think we've all heard anecdotal uh, you know, uh, bits of quote-unquote trivia about how you know a, a, an ounce of fentanyl can kill X number of people. It's really quite astounding, isn't it? Well, fentanyl is, is um, yes, it, it, it's, you know, a few grains of salt is what you're talking about normally to kill a person who, who is, uh, doesn't have any tolerance to the drug. Again, this is an opioid like heroin, like morphine. It develops, you develop tolerance on it. But if you have none, um, uh, you know, a few grains of salt is all it's really going to take. The, the, what that means is that this is more profitable than any other drug that the underworld has ever encountered. However, what it also means is that to access that profit, they need to now mix it with something. It's not commercially viable to sell a few grains of salt on the street. You know what I mean? So you have to mix it with powder. The problem is they're extraordinarily bad at mixing uh, uh, this kind of stuff. They don't know what they're doing. Mo- most people on the street don't know what they're doing. Some people in Mexico seem to maybe know, but but not a, but but not the the majority. And so. Well, right, and clearly the margin for error is so incredibly small with something that powerful. Exactly, right. Early on in the book, um, I tell the story of how early on when fentanyl first started coming over here from China, being mailed through the mail largely, and, you know, kilos or half kilos or pound sizes, not very large, um, people here didn't know how to mix it either. Um, and they be, the myth grew that you could mix it best with a magic bullet blender, the magic bullet blender that you see at Target for like, I guess, twenty nine ninety five, I think it was. We, we own one at our house, um, and they make, it's great for making smoothies. It is a really bad machine for mixing fentanyl, largely because fentanyl is normally a powder. You're trying to mix it with other powders, other white powders, so that you can then sell it. The problem is when you mix it that way um, with a magic bullet blender, it's got a blade. The blade mixes liquid. It doesn't mix powders at all. And so what you began to see were these clusters of overdoses, you know, 20, 50 in a weekend in Cincinnati, 70 in a weekend in Huntington, West Virginia, um, uh, that, that, that kind of thing. And, and it's just this, this drug is so difficult to mix that it, it, it's by itself because of that very, very um, uh, dangerous. And every, every time you, you use, it's, it's, it's a crapshoot. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a Russian game of Russian roulette almost every time now. So to what extent is it still being manufactured in China, and to what extent is it being cranked out of labs in Mexico? No, no, it's all shifted to Mexico now. In, oh, okay. 19, in, 2000, in 2019, the, the Chinese government put a, put a, a, a rule in place. Um, only certain companies can produce it, and all these other ones had to stop, and they're pretty scared of the government there, so they did. And, but they still sell the, the ingredients, you know, the, 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 the rest of the, the ingredients in fentanyl are still sold. Uh, out of China, and the major uh, 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 customers for that, I believe, are the, the folks in Mexico who have now learned how to do that. They know know how to make uh, mm-hmm. fentanyl. In fact, the truth is, 
you would not be able to cover the country with fentanyl, the way fentanyl is covering the country now, um, with the amounts that were coming in from China in packages, you know, small packages, you know, a pound here, a kilo there. That's not a, that would never be able to do the, the coverage. It's, it has to be with a, with a country with which we share a 2000 mile border that, that uh, which, with which we have free trade. And so you have all that, that stuff is coming through walls. It's all coming through border crossings, most heavily guarded stuff in the, uh, the border crossings, almost in the, in the world outside, maybe Korea and North Korea. But, um, but it's 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 getting th- it's getting through in quantities that never you could never really feasibly um, mail you know uh, from 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 China. So what's happening now is because that shipment that, I'm sorry that that source has shifted mm. uh, to Mexico. So before we get more into the logistics of the thing, uh, help us understand the toll. How many people are dying of fentanyl overdoses? Oh my goodness! A, a great, great numbers, hundred thousand a year. Every talk uh, they have, they just came out with uh, uh, statistics. The CDC did that uh, between April uh, twenty-one, uh, April twenty, and April twenty-one, a uh, hundred thousand people died of overdoses. That's the, the a record that we've never gone over a hundred thousand uh, before in the history of this country. Um, it's it's in, in very high numbers in many many states. There's a few where it's dropped off. But, I mean, it, this is happening con- constantly all across the country, and largely um, it's because of the mixing. It's also because the, the trafficking world, particularly at the street level, has turned to, making, to mixing fentanyl into other drugs. So I, I don't believe there's any cocaine anymore in America that you can actually trust not to have fentanyl in it. Wow. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's like almost everything, you know. The great actor who was in The Wire, Michael K. Williams, he had a cocaine problem he was struggling with for many years. Um, he died uh, not from the cocaine, but from the, from the fentanyl that was in his, in his the batch that, or the, the, the packet or whatever it is that he, he bought. Uh, you see these things happening uh, frequently all across the country. He was a celebrated case, but, I mean, there's many, many, many cases all across the country. It's also the way through which the African-American community has been dying of, uh, in the opioid epidemic. When I wrote Dreamland, I could safely say I didn't speak with any black people for Dreamland because it was really a white issue. It was like 95% of all victims were white, right? Right. And yeah. what, but with fentanyl, what's happened is, Dealers at the, in the in the black community have figured out if I could, as dealers have all across the country, I put my fentanyl, which is dirt cheap, but it's very cheap, a little bit of fentanyl into cocaine. All of a sudden, they'll boost it. Get a bigger, but also what it'll do is it's almost like a, a business um, expansion move. So if you have a, a cocaine buyer, normally those folks will buy every few days. Maybe they take a week vacation from the dope or whatever, maybe even a month vacation, whatever. They're not consistent buyers. But once you have an opioid addict, that, that, that person has to buy from you every single day. No vacation because the dope sickness is, is a bear, and wow. they're trying to keep the dope sickness away. And so what, what ends up happening is from a cocaine customer, you add fentanyl to the cocaine, pretty soon you have an opioid addict. And this is happening all across the country uh, uh, as well. What, what's happening now is the people who have survived their first exposure to fentanyl, now they're addicted to, uh, to, to, to the drug, and they need fentanyl. So now heroin is almost worthless, right? Heroin is worthless because there's no um, – it won't – it's too, too mild to keep the dope sickness away. Now you need fentanyl. And the problem is there, again, as I was saying earlier, the mix is, is frequently so unpredictable and – 
The only thing you can really predict about it is that it's going to be bad eventually. Uh, whatever you use will eventually be a bad mix and, and will, will kill you. And that's kind of what's happening uh, now all across all across the country. It used to just be happening in the area where the opioid epidemic was bad. You know, the first state, really, Ohio, was the place where it, where it first started. And that's in, the, in, my, in the book, The Least of Us, in, in, in the book that I just published, I focus on um, Akron and Cleveland and some of these other towns. Where, where this first hit in 2014, Cincinnati, and then into West Virginia as well, it didn't really hit, <clears throat> pardon me, the West Coast, I would say, until maybe, you know, 2018. It, it, it took, takes a while before it kind of catches up. Yeah, well, and, and I know enough about drugs and addiction, and some of my musical heroes have died of uh, overdoses, that when, when folks stumble on the road to recovery, they decide to go back and have another hit or whatever, often their tolerance is down from where it was, and they'll take yeah. the same hit, for instance, of heroin that they used to. It'll kill them. Well, this has got to be that effect times, I don't know, 10 times 100 in, in terms of, of the risk of having one more hit. That's the thing. There's no more, um, in America, there's no more surviving recreational drug use anymore. That's, that's the, wow. the bottom line, I have to say. That, that you, you know, I, I'm 62. I grew up in an era when you, it was like almost like rude not to, you know, take a line of cocaine at some parties and so on. And the, the truth is that um, that, that is uh, those days. I mean, every, every, every line of cocaine, every, uh, you know, uh, it's 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 these are um, um, you know it's Russian roulette. Right, right. So, hey, so listen, those old ideas are gone. I, I realize this could be the topic of another book or books, but in your opinion, because I know you've written about studied Mexico in terms of the drug trade and a hundred yeah. other issues for a long time. To what extent is uh, Mexico a functioning government, and to what extent is it a narco state? Um, that's a hard question to answer because there's certainly many parts of the country that are sure. functioning clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain areas and certain attitudes within certain elements of the government government that I say I would say lend itself to um, to uh, something along those lines where you just can't really um, you know you can't they are functioning freely and and um, in the state of Sinaloa I have to say parts of the state of Michoacan where I used to go very very freely I lived in Mexico for ten years. And I would travel to, to Michoacan very often, mostly to do stories about immigration, because there's a whole lot of immigration coming out of Michoacan. Now it's really a, a state I wouldn't go to any, anymore. Certain areas of the border are like this, certain parts of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, around the, uh, the Golden Triangle, what they call the, uh, the areas of Chihuahua, Durango, Sinaloa, the hill, the mountain areas there. Um, you know, these are areas that are, that are not safe, and, and those areas keep on shifting, too according to who's fighting whom and, you know, so the, the, the cartel world down there, I would say when I was in Mexico, there was very clear, you could draw the border and you could divide up the, the border according to like the way they used to do with the Italian mob, the five families in New York and Jersey and so on. You could see, okay, this is the Colombo, this is the Bonanno family. You could do the same with the Juarez drug cartel, the Tijuana drug cartel. All these guys were from Sinaloa, but they controlled parts of the border far away from the, Far away from the state, what's happened now in the last 15 years, really, maybe longer, really, is that all those easily definable groups have fragmented. And now following who is a cartel and where these cartels are, and I don't even call them cartels anymore, because here's the difference between a cartel. I studied economics in college, and a cartel is a group that, 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 that restricts product 
to drive price up. And that is the opposite of what's happening in Mexico now. And that is because they're not cartels in that strict sense. Right, sure. They are, they are groups that are kind of loosely affiliated and, you know, sometimes fighting a little among themselves, but loosely uh, affiliated. But who can, there's nobody really controlling production of these drugs. Everyone's kind of free to do what they want. A lot of the guys have taken like those, like those, uh, those merchants who sold the, the, the gold miners their shovels and tents during the gold rush, they're selling them the, the, the chemicals. That's right. how people are probably most likely getting, getting wealthy. And it doesn't matter. They want people to make more. And so you have these collapse in prices. It's an amazing thing with methamphetamine. Methamphetamine's prices effectively dropped by about 80%. It depends on the region, obviously, but about 80% all across the country, even as they covered the entire country. You know, so there's meth in Vermont and New Hampshire that never used to be there. And uh, the prices all over the country are 80 percent below what they what they've uh, what they've been historically, according to the DEA and, and agents you talk to on in these different areas. I'm in Nashville at the moment. A, a, a pound of, of uh, one ounce of let's just say an ounce of, of meth used to be twelve hundred fifty dollars. Now it's like about two hundred. Wow. At least the price of something is dropping, he says, fully cognizant of how distasteful that joke is. Uh, so um, if you were dragged in front of Congress to the White House or whatever and, and asked, what in the world can we do to stem the flow of fentanyl into the country? Because the death toll is just astounding. Uh, is there anything we can do? Well, I think I think there's a few things on the national level that we, we sh- absolutely need to do. I was overwhelmed by this feeling when I lived in Mexico that we have never established uh, the relationship. Our relationship with Mexico is ought to be equal in the minds of our policymakers and our government and so on and, and, and the political class and, and, and so on to any relationship we have in the world. Uh, to England, we have with England, with Japan, with Russia, with China. It's fraught. It's difficult. But we need to make it a priority of the equal to those countries that I just said. And when we do that, we don't like, you know, how many people can actually Americans can actually name the six Mexican border states with the United States. That, that, that kind of basic stuff we just don't know about Mexico. You know, it's just not even there. And and so I believe that once we have this relationship, we can't. There are lots of Mexicans I know. Who would be very happy to have their government pushed to address the horrible corruption in their um, in their criminal justice. And really, it's almost not just even corruption. It's just simply the institutions are unbelievably weak. It's not anything like we have here in the United States, except for maybe in the, the smallest uh, town kind of sheriff, corrupt sheriff kind of idea, you know, or stuff that we used to have in the 30s under Al Capone. It's that kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that many Mexicans are begging for that. This is not something that is uh, a debatable point, I don't think, in Mexico. We absolutely, this is, this is running our country into the ground. Um, the other thing I think we need to do, as a country in the United States, is this is a binational problem. And that is that the guns that are purchased easily here are what ensures that impunity down in Mexico. So many of those guns are smuggled into Mexico, smuggled south, uh, and usually in small quantities, not big truckloads of hundreds of guns or anything like that. Usually, you know, a, a 5, 10, 20 here and there. And, and, but over a period of, of years, it adds up. And that is what ensures their impunity. The, the price of, a, of an AK-47 made in Eastern Europe 
sold uh, legally here into, into the United States and then bought here legally in the United States and then smuggled south. The price of that is, two, is methamphetamine for $200 a, a, a pound in, or an ounce, rather, in, um, in Nashville, Tennessee. Boy, you that, that want to talk about a, a topic that'll take another book. I mean, that's that's a big one and full of <laughs> twists, turns, oh, and difficulties. Obviously, it yeah. Is. It is. So, so um, incredibly troubling and deadly, obviously. But let's turn to uh, the P two P meth that was the main topic of the excerpt from your book that was in the Atlantic that Jack and I talked about a great deal. We, uh, for what it's worth, you know, we we definitely swing conservative politically uh, speaking on most things. I, I hate labels. Labels are for soup cans. But um, right. it's also true that we don't hate anybody. We're not. We try not to be condescending unless it's intentional for the purposes of humor. And we have quite a number of listeners who are either uh, uh, former drug, uh, drug addicts, recovering drug addicts, former homeless people, tweakers, uh, people with all sorts of sins right. and all, because they know we're not preaching at them. We understand people make choices. Sometimes they make bad choices and sometimes life goes sideways it happens it can happen to anybody uh, you just have to take responsibility for you know the way you live your life is our point of view so we've talked to a hell of a lot of people who have been on the streets or are currently on the streets who say everybody's a tweaker out here everybody in the tent camps is doing meth and they don't mean literally yeah. every single human being but uh, there was a report out of Portland. They had a couple of guys who are now turning their lives around working for the city. It's actually a really nice story. But they are saying, oh, my God, these so-called homeless camps are meth. Uh, the, the homeless camps, rather, are meth camps. Uh, how did we get to this point? And what effect is this n new meth, which is actually kind of the old meth, this P2P meth? What's, what effect is it having? Right. Well, this the, the the roots of all this are the are in the fact that the the Mexican trafficking world, a, a few folks who are in particular who are instrumental in all this, I talk about in the book, um, uh, begins to uh, understand learn how to make methamphetamine in the late '80s, mostly in the San Diego Tijuana area, um, uh, and um, they make it, it. They were able to learn. Because it's a very simple process then. It uses a chemical called ephedrine. It's a decongestant. It's found in Sudafed pills and all that. That's why, that's why you can't buy those things very easily. You have to sign and there's a behind lock and key and all that. Ephedrine is a, is a very easy chemical. It's very effective and good de decongestant. But a couple of chemical tweaks and it becomes methamphetamine. It's not really hard to do. Um, so any, almost anybody can make it. And that, it really democratizes how how uh, uh, meth can be made. But the folks who really take greatest advantage of it are Mexican traffickers increasingly in, into, the, into the 1990s. The labs, they, they called them then super labs. That, that sounds, sounds like a bizarre term now, given those quantities coming out of Mexico today. But super lab would be 50 to 100 pounds every time you cook, that kind of thing. And, and you began to see this stuff in, in the Central Valley of California, San Diego, Temecula, up into Bakersfield, Fresno, and so on, and then also down into, into Mexico. And they really uh, uh, specialize in, they industrialize this. So they're able to produce then very large quantities of stuff of this stuff, but it's always limited by the amount of ephedrine they can get. Now, for a long time, it was legal. Uh, you could get hundreds of tons imported. Uh, hundreds of tons would be imported into Mexico. And a significant part of that was went to make methamphetamine. But there was never enough to really cover the entire United States. Increasingly, really, it was just a lot of the western United States. Uh, it never went east of the Mississippi River. Um, ephedrine meth was a very euphoric 
drug, you would stay up for several days. You want to be around people, gabbing away, you know. Um, the, your withdrawals from it would be you basically slept solid for two days, you know, and just were out. And then you were coherent. You, were, you kind of returned more or less to your same mental state that you were uh, uh, before that, although over time, clearly, it degraded your body and your mind. It took several years to do this. But in so to, to be in a state where you really weren't yeah. functional, you would have to abuse it for years. For, for a long time and stay up for many days. Once you stayed right. up for many days, you began to see these what they call shadow people frequently. You know, like there's somebody over there and you look and actually there's nobody. But, you know, yeah. it's that kind of your mind playing tricks on you, so to speak. In 2008, all that changes. Uh, Mexico in 2008, uh, prompted by a number of, of political reasons that I go, go into in the book why they did this, but they make ephedrine uh, illegal except for a few pharmaceutical companies to possess and use in their processes. And, and with that, the Mexican trafficking world has to figure out how to make ephedrine, I mean, methamphetamine, I'm sorry, uh, uh, another another way. They've actually been seeing this writing on the wall for a couple of years. By then, 2006 is when they first begin to start experimenting with this. By 2008, the whole the wall shut, slammed shut, and they now have to figure out a new. So there is another way of making methamphetamine. It's it's, it's really not very easy. It's smelly. It's messy. A lot of different chemicals. Um, it's not it's anything you'd want to use, except for if you can't get ephedrine. And so. And, and this chem, uh, 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 method uses a, a precursor known as P2P, phenyl-2-propanone, very commonly uh, known in the meth-making uh, uh, world. Uh, this method has one benefit to traffickers over the federal, and that is that you can make P2P easily and with many different kind of chemical recipes or chemical hacks using chemicals that are widely available in industry. They're all industrial. They're all legal, easily available in world, world markets, all, most of them very highly, highly toxic. But you can, if, so if the government cracks down on this recipe of making P2P, you can come back with this other one and this one. And there's, there's apparently dozens. In fact, I think they never stop inventing new ways of making P, P2P. What this means is if you have access to, chemi- to, to chemicals, which the Mexican trafficking world does, as I said, through these two ports on the Pacific coast of Mexico, you can begin to make this stuff all year round and in quantities that dwarf anything you were capable of making with ephedrine. And that's what begins to happen. It, it not right off the bat. It takes a couple of years, takes a few years for people to get used to this new reality, but certainly by 2012, 13, 14, you begin to see quantities, just staggering quantities coming through and marching across the country. So in LA, Portland, West Coast, basically 2013, 14, you're seeing this stuff. It, it hits the Midwest, crosses the Mississippi River for the first time, hits the Midwest by 2017, and then hits the, the, the East Coast and up into New England, which never had any meth in 2019, roughly, in 18, 19. Uh, and so at the same time, as I said, it's produced in such quantities that the price drops, too. Not only to cover the, the country, the price drops, but this, this methamphetamine, has been shown to be accompanied, and I use these words carefully, and I'll explain why in a little bit, is accompanied every place along the way, according to my reporting, talking to people in all these different areas, by not just, uh, not just the staying up long, a, a lot of days. Uh, it's no longer a euphoric drug. It's a very sinister drug. It turns you inward. It's accompanied by um, uh, symptoms of schizophrenia. 
So you see people of extraordinarily paranoid, very intense paranoia, like everyone's out to get you. No one can be trusted, and you're running because somebody you think you uh, somebody looks at you strange, you know. And at the same time, very very florid, intense uh, hallucinations. Now, now, Sam, let me let me just jump in and ask you because we've had some folks, whether in law enforcement or on the street, say, "Well, listen, it's not as much about the chemical nature of it, but just it is so cheap and so powerful these days that it's overwhelming people's brains." So, is it one or the other, or is it really both? Well, here's the here's the thing. Uh, the reason I said accompanied by and not cause, causes it is because there is no neuroscience on this. Mm-hmm. Nobody understands really what's at work, I, at least of all me. Okay, I don't want to be putting myself out there. What I'm giving you is street reporting. Okay, I'm going, I'm talking to people, you know, ER docs in these towns and drug counselors over here and recovering addicts over here. Um, no one has actually studied P2P meth the way it's made in Mexico right now. There's no rat studies, no mice studies. There's no journal reports. I'm simply telling you that this is the reporting I've done in these various areas and keep on doing, even though the book's published. I, I'm, I'm still talking to people. I'm probably going to talk with a person there, Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico, in a, in a later, later today on this very topic. Um, but over and over and over, you just hear this all the same, the same stories. People go out of their minds. They're raving. They're incapable of living with anybody, so very quickly they're homeless. And the place they least want to be is a homeless shelter, because in a homeless shelter, everybody seems to be a threat. You know, you're, you're surrounded by people who are, who are almost like themselves a little bit out of their mind, and everyone's confined, and you've got to obey rules, and there's all this stuff. And so so uh, along with that comes this very severe, um, accompanied by all this methamphetamine, comes this very severe uh, mental illness. And then along with uh, as well as um, a homelessness and along with that, then comes the tent encampments. Tents become perfect lodging. If you are in a state of mind where you think the entire world is a threat, the last thing you want to do is be around other people. So a little it's a little pod in which you can kind of exist with what is stuck in your brain and all the bizarre ideas that are coming through through through, through your brain. This is homelessness is a is a is a. Um, there are many kinds of homelessness. There are many reasons why people end up homeless. A lot of them, you know, sh- shredded safety net homeless. People who lose a job and have surgery can't find, can't afford a house and the surgery. That that kind of story is also part of it. There's the sex registrant homeless who, uh, you know, a registered uh, sex offender is only a few places in his in, in his town or his county where he can where he can live, and frequently they end up homeless. You know, there's a lot of reasons. However. My reporting, I believe, has convinced me and shows that that a major force behind those tent encampments is, and the homelessness and the delirium that people are often suffering from and all that is this methamphetamine that's come out of Mexico over the last, well, 8, 10, 11 years in, in, in many parts of the country, uh, certainly nine, 8 or 9 years in, many, in, in almost all the country, um, that, that is made with this P2P. Why is it? What are the neuroscientific reasons for it? I don't know. It hasn't been studied in the least. Do we and, have any? I, again, I want to. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, do we have any idea whether some of the mental health problems you're talking about, uh, can they go away? Can the brain heal once you discontinue the meth use? Or are these people just damaged for life? I realize it's early days, but. It is, it is early, but I would tell you this. I spoke with a woman who is the, um, who is a, a director of a homeless shelter. Uh, in the Midwest, 
Um, and she spent many years on Skid Road working with homeless folks, and she was graphic about this stuff. She's saying used to be we could teach people how to repair their lives. We're almost like life coaches, basically, you know, how to get a driver's license, how to apply for a job, all these kinds of things. You could teach people all these ways of recovering and getting back into life. But the problem is the effect nowadays of the meth is so devastating. This is a woman with 30 years on the job, okay? This is, she is a not born yesterday on this stuff. And, and she was telling me that, that we no longer use life coaching because the people who we see, who even though they're sober, they're not on meth. They are not capable. They, their brains have been so devastated that they're not capable of following these simple societal rules. As frequently, their memories are shot, too. They're, they're just not able to function the way you need to function in a society. You know? and so you have all of this kind of um, uh, combined. So it's still not clear, but the initial indications, and I answer your question, seem to be that there is, uh, in many people, a, pr- uh, a permanent, or at least semi-permanent, a lasting, let's say, uh, damage to one's brain. And one woman I, I quote in, in, in the book, in, my, in the least of us, my latest book, it, uh, says that too. She, she, you know, she was barking like a dog, she said, and went out of her mind on this stuff. She gets sober. She'd been sober two years by the time I spoke with her. And, but she still knows she's not the same. It's such a poignant interview. She says, I'm hoping they can study this stuff because, you know, meditation helps, uh, quiet time helps, uh, physical exercise helps, but there's, she's still not the same. She knows this. And she says, I just would love to know what I can do, what more I can do to help heal my brain. And, and I think that's what's really um, uh, going on out there. It, it's, there's so many folks, the longer they're left in, in presence of this meth, the more damage it's going to do. And the other problem is even if it doesn't create your homelessness, even if it's not the root cause of why you're on the street, the fact that you are on the street and it is so prevalent and so cheap in many, so many areas of this country that frequently people fall into using it sometimes to remove themselves from the reality that they happen to be living in so they don't feel that reality. And so it, but that means it, 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 it serves to keep you homeless and make homelessness more durable, more endurable, kind of. Well, it it strikes me that all of us who grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, maybe we were part of yours, maybe not, conservative, liberal, whatever, we need to just completely reapproach the question of drug use and legalization and what's partying and what's not. I mean, all all the facts have changed. I mean, other than, I'm thinking back to when, you know, when I was a kid or, or you know, a college student, whatever, if, if you overdid LSD, you could really screw your mind, and ecstasy was just coming on the scene when I was in college, and there were definitely some people who did themselves serious damage, but, I mean, whether it's the much, much more potent yeah. pot or what we've been talking about, it's just the, the equation, all the factors in the equation have changed. That's, that's absolutely, yeah, very astute observation. I think that that's actually the truth. All the, all the myths that we used to scoff at, frankly, because, frankly, a lot of them were myths. They were silly, you know. Um, uh, back in the 30s, 50s, 70s, whatever it was, you know, I, I got some of the stuff when I was in school too, and I knew it wasn't really true what they were saying, you know. So I laughed at it. But, well, all those myths have become reality. Yeah. You can die from a line of cocaine. One hit of meth can uh, lead to you going out of your mind. Uh, you know, pyrupotent pot can lead you to be, um, uh, 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 you know, 
at a send you to an ER with a psychotic uh, ep- ep- episode. You know, mm-hmm. uh, heroin does kill one one hit of heroin does kill you. You know, th- that is the the reality of today. And so the facts have changed, but frequently our um, our how shall I put it? Our thinking has not. Yeah, there's still yeah. this idea that that you know we shouldn't arrest people for this stuff. Frequently about the only place that people are safe, and I hate to put it this way because it's, it's, it's a nuanced idea, but frequently about the only people are, people are safe away from this damaging, these damaging two prevalent cheap drugs is in jail. You know, you know uh, Sam, just it. let me jump in and, and point out, we read an email on the air the other day of a guy who's turned his life around after a, a fairly prolonged meth addiction, and it was so interesting how he phrased one aspect of his journey. He said that... Uh, meth was essentially decriminalized right after he got arrested. And he said, thank God I dodged that bullet. It was only right. being incarcerated that, that stopped his use. And he's so grateful for it. And, you know, that's not some sort of idiotic ham-handed arrest everybody argument. But no, it's, no. It's, it's true. It just is. It is. And I, I, I can tell you, I've been doing this now nine years. And the number of people have heard this so many times in long interviews and in short interview casual conversations on and on and on and every drug counselor's heard it as well that the best day of my life the best thing ever happened to me was that i was arrested uh got off the streets um in fact in dreamland my previous book uh, a guy almost ordered me to quote him and i did uh in 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 new mexico in santa fe saying um uh the, the i want to thank the dea <laughs> for arresting me because uh, I would be dead uh, otherwise. Now he's doing very well. He's uh, we're still in contact on Facebook, and he's he's doing very well. And and but that happened because he was taken off the street. Jail is not the way we do jail today. Needs to be changed. I can I'm convinced. And I think I think there are um, uh, uh, there, in fact in the, the, my latest book there, there, there's chapters on this one county in Kentucky that is experimenting with how to do jail differently. They have a pod. Of, of recovery, a recovery pod as part of the jail and GED classes and criminal thinking classes and all that, because jail has largely been this anchor around our neck. If you go in a criminal, mentally ill or addicted, you're going to come out worse. You know, right, right. we need to approach this differently, I believe, or at least af- offer a different option to folks in jail who want to follow it. And, and that's happening now in many counties, particularly in those areas where the opioid epidemic was worse, Kentucky, Ohio, places like that. But um, even the fact of just getting off the street, if you if you buy the the, the homeless um, shelter administrators uh, comment to me that the folks who are out there on the street now that, that, that are using this stuff when they stop, that their brains are, are perhaps permanently, at least long term, devastated in her words, um, then then more exposure to that stuff is is going to lead to further uh, uh, devastation, of course, with fentanyl, you risk almost every day, basically every day, um, uh, de- death. You know, so the idea that of decriminalizing this stuff, COVID was simply—I'm uh, taken to saying—COVID is simply a, a year-long, unplanned, completely obviously unplanned experiment in decriminalizing drugs on the street when those drugs on the street are fentanyl and meth. And so you see the, the record overdose deaths. You see my my opinion really. The, the real expansion of mental illness and homelessness uh, that's driven, I believe, 
uh, my reporting shows by, by, by this methamphetamine that's coming out of Mexico in its unprecedented quantities. Wow, what a great point. Uh, so final thought, uh, you've scared the crap out of us, and appropriately so, but uh, the, the, the title of your book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth, where's the hope coming from? Well, <laughs> this is always the problem I get into with interviews like this. I love talking about all parts of this book. This part of the book is really most of the book. Um, uh, it's, it's more than half the book. It's taken up with stories. And so it really, I hate to, t- put, to say that, to, but, but it really warrants a, a, a full conversation of another hour. And I'm happy to do that at another time, if you wish. But, but the, 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 I, I really did view this as an as a, as a opportunity, this whole thing. And, 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 and in part because I thought that one of the main reasons for the, the opioid epidemic uh, and all the problems we faced um, uh, and, and in terms of drugs has a lot to do with our turning our back or, or ignoring or shredding the, 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 what bonded us, what brought bonded us. You know, if you think about why we as humans survived and prospered as a species for whatever, millions of years now, what is the, the thing that held it, helped, made that possible? And I would argue to you that it is our feeling that not the, of community that we need. It's not a nice thing. It's an essential thing. It was, it's what kept us alive, allowed us to survive. And, and we have decided in America, I would say, I don't know about other countries, maybe it's also true, but I'm just talking about the country I know. In America, we have decided in the last 40 years that that's not necessary. You know, right. like we don't really need to be around other people or we can just be around certain kinds of people. Uh, we don't need to, you know, um, uh, the community banks, they can be swallowed up and, and by big banks and who, who cares? You know, there's, there's, we could go on for like literally an hour talking about all the ways in which American, uh, the, our culture, we have shredded, destroyed, ignored, unfunded, whatever, things that brought us together that were really the bulwarks of defense against this stuff. And now we, we find ourselves so vulnerable because why? Uh, my, my feeling is because we're so isolated and we we got away from the idea that a community is built by small acts daily acts not worrying if you're saving the world not worrying if you're if you're some noble person out there doing everything and getting all the credit and you just and so what i did was understanding believing that this was the case i decided i was going to fill my book actually half of the book with the stories of americans involved as many stories of quiet activity, quiet work, daily work of Americans involved in community repair that I could find. Not necessarily working only with addiction now, just Mm -hmm. the idea that we need to be outside among each other, uh, overlooking all these reasons why we're supposed to hate this other person, uh, race or or, or political persuasion or all this kind of crap. When you get down to the bottom uh, local grassroots level, you find a lot of that just does not matter at all. And it's very exhilarating to do that. So, for example, just give you one example. There's many in the book because this was this became my main focus. Not the not the dope, the dope. I I understood it. I understood fentanyl. I understood meth, and I told those stories without blinking. But the real stories that exhilarated me, that made me feel like, damn, this is worth doing, you know. And and this is the heart and soul of what I'm trying to write. There are stories of of this small kind of stories of community repair. One of them had to do with a guy named Bird. Mike McKissick and the small southern uh, south uh, in Muncie, Indiana, south, south Muncie neighborhood, 
surrounded by what used to be enormous uh, transmission plants, the transmission capital of America, Muncie, Muncie once was. Well, as those plants you know, are, are really on the verge of dying out, they've been dwindling for years, and now they're about to die out, the city fathers say, you know what, we can't afford to keep open these community centers. Uh, that we have three of them around, and one of them was right across the street from Bird's house. He had worked there for a while. So the city fathers, they went on the budget, you know, it was not possible anymore. And so they closed the centers, and they think that's the end of it, except, except that Bird keeps the key. Right? <laughs> Bird keeps the key. He doesn't tell the city leaders anything about this. He just becomes a, a community center unto himself as his neighborhood suffers from this real economic stress. And then, of course, the opioid thing on top of that. I mean, all of this is happening at the same time. And he keeps the key. And he goes over and he opens the door for the kids when they want to play basketball. He gives them a place to hang out amid all this you know, devastation all around them. The, the community center, without any money, basically, continues to function as a community center. And, of course, he, 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 uh, he keeps the... He keeps the, the, the he mows the lawn outside. He he keeps the toilets fixed. All this kind of stuff. It, it he allows his community, his his neighborhood, to weather this powerful these powerful storms, and and come out kind of the 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 other the other side. So I tell three chapters in the book is about Muncie, Indiana, and Bird McKissick, who later who dies. He's a strange man, no doubt. He's a man who literally like psychologically had some issues and and literally never could leave his neighborhood. He was afraid to leave mm-hmm. his neighborhood, but he was, he was like the mayor of the South Muncie n- neighborhood, and he kept it alive. It's those kinds of stories that I believe I wanted to tell, not because they're a prescription. I don't know what every county in America needs to do about this stuff. I just think that it's very important to understand that we have gotten away from this stuff that is our lifesaver. It's our, well, it's our life raft, uh, and that I, is the com- feeling of, of repairing community, making that strong again. Boy, I'm starting to get a sense of why you juxtapose those two major themes in your book, but it's, it's interesting to me that you did in that way. And, and by the way, these issues are stuff we talk about all the time, substituting the yeah. empty calories of, say, online engagement with actual human contact, and if a Facebook what a, friend what a, what is what anything idea. like a friend, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. What an idea. You know, face-to-face contact, my God. It seems like radical in the in the context of America, of America today, don't you think? I mean, to me, but to me, this is and 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 the idea is to to get across this idea: we are only as strong as the most vulnerable. Um, we're only as strong. We learned during the pandemic. All of a sudden, our lives relied on that meatpacking worker in Kansas, we, who all of a sudden we discover is actually a, an essential worker, every bit as essential as as uh, some paramedic, you know, because so, so as the food supply dies. We die, you know, what about the grocery store clerk? All of these things. And, and uh, along the way, just to explain the title, you know, I'm not Christian, but I was reading the Bible during writing this, and I read the Gospel of Matthew. And, of course, that's a very powerful Gospel, particularly in certain parts of it, um, several parts. But one of them, of course, one of the most powerful is one Jesus says to his, his disciples, that which you do for the least of my brethren, you do for me. And, I, and that hit me. It was something I'd read years ago, but I came back to it for some reason. And when in the middle of it, I realized kind of why I had done that. And that that, that seemed to me also this perfect meshing of the, of the ideas I was trying to get across. What is the defense against not only, not only the sinister drug crap that's coming up, but all these other uh, uh, um, uh, addictive substances and stuff? 
that we are constantly bombarded with sugar and, and fast food and social media and, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all the rest and, and cable TV news and, and uh, pornography and gambling and video games. And you go on and on, take nicotine, alcohol. What is our best defense? These are all the same kind of thing. They're all a bunch of groups whose job it is to tweak whatever they're selling so that we will need, we will feel like we have to have it. Sinaloa Drug Cartel, McDonald's, Facebook, you know, uh, Caesars Gambling Casino, it's kind of all in the same uh, uh, continuum, uh, I believe. And so to me, I think Jesus understood that the important idea that had allowed people to survive up to his time and have allowed us to survive as a species uh, ever since, and that is that we have to understand how important it is to be with each other. So in some sense, that community idea, he understood that you may not have understood the neuroscience of it, but he mm-hmm. certainly understood the, the idea there. And, and so at, at some point, these, these solutions maybe even become fairly low tech. You know, like, how about just getting out of the house, have a barbecue with your neighbors, get to know that person always seems like such a curmudgeon. Maybe actually get to know him. Maybe he's, he's actually a nice guy, you know, not worrying about whether that person has a Trump or Biden sign in his front yard anymore. Yeah. You know, once you get beyond that, get beyond that, establish those face to face relationships of we, we, what we've lost so much of in, in this country, I think. Yeah. You know, at the risk of sounding like a curmudgeon myself, um, I'm concerned that though there's an enormous amount of awareness of the things you're talking about, um, that number one, the pace of change makes it very difficult to come up with cures yep. as quickly as the diseases happen. And number two, the greatest minds of our, our generations are devoted to the very <laughs> endeavors you're talking about, which exactly. are you know utterly heartless and soulless in, in their effects. But uh, no, I agree with you completely. It, I'm troubled. You know, it's funny. There are uh, there are no chimpanzees sitting around uh, discussing how chimpanzees will clearly be their own doom. Uh, whereas humankind, yeah. I think, has been aware of that since, you know, when people started tossing ideas around the campfire. It's not clear whether it's going right. to be a, a virus or a nuclear weapon or or drugs or Facebook. But by God, I'd, I've often said that, uh, Sam, that uh, Homo sapiens are my least favorite uh, species. It's uh, Mosquitoes are second <laughs> to the bottom. But, yeah, yeah, but, but Homo sapiens, I don't know what to do with us. You know no, what? I, I, don't, I, I don't particularly know either. I don't uh, claim to have any answers here. I'm just saying the stories I tried to write were saying this is what people are doing. Maybe that attitude is something you might want to think about. That's, well, that's, I, the, that's the most a journalist can really do, I think. I love the idea of getting together again and chatting about that theme of the book, the connectedness and things that we can do on small and medium scales uh, and not just get on uh, uh, Twitter and announce that anybody who disagrees with me is a piece of crap um, or worse. Uh, But, you know, what can we do in our own communities? You know, there's there's a, a number of. Uh, the great philosophers, religious figures uh, who would point out that uh, start with your own soul, then perhaps your family, right. your household, then maybe your block. Why don't we deal with that and then start curing the problems of the globe? And, and not worry that what you're doing is not in some noble, virtuous way saving the world. Right. And have it be enough that you're doing it on your block, your church, your uh, PTA, your school, your kid's school. That, that kind of thing to me so often gets in the way. Like I'm not, oh, there's all these other problems. Yeah, so what? Just do like work your own garden, so to speak.
Yeah, yeah, save the one starship. It's a metaphor that's both cliched and incredibly powerful. Uh, the own st- uh, starfish, rather. We're not sta- saving starships. We're not Captain Kirk in this scenario. Starfish. I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Sam, hey, it's been great to talk, and we will uh, we'll absolutely do it again. Extra large. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.